Welcome to Your Brain Matters. This is a podcast designed to help you better understand your brain and the issues that matter for thinking and behaviour by talking with neuropsychologists. Over the series, we will examine various conditions that may impact upon function and the contexts in which neuropsychological assessment or intervention can be of assistance. Just a reminder that if you want to find out more practical information about exactly what neuropsychologists do and where to find them, you are welcome to revisit episode one. I'm your host, Debbie Anderson. I am a clinical neuropsychologist in Brisbane, Australia. I'm pleased to welcome you to this season, which I'm calling the conference season. In Australia, we are gearing up for the College of Clinical Neuropsychologists Conference in November. So I have invited several of the conference speakers to give us a small insight into the topics they will be covering at the conference. This is a great way to become informed about the issues that are on the minds of neuropsychologists. It's designed to help you understand cognitive function in yourself or someone close to you, or if you're planning to refer someone to see a neuropsychologist. So I'm pleased you could join me and I hope you enjoy learning a little bit more information about your brain matters. Today, we are looking at a very complicated topic that focuses our attention on the emergence of criminal behaviour as the first sign of dementia. Because it covers both legal and neuropsychological issues, I have two guests today. Associate Professor Fiona Comfort is a clinical neuropsychologist and NHMRC Fellow at the University of Sydney. Her research investigates social cognition in clinical syndromes with a focus on dementia and aims to improve the assessment, diagnosis and prognosis of neurological conditions while also informing neurobiological models of complex human behaviours such as empathy, motivation and emotion. Professor Nola Rees is an experienced legal and social science researcher with expertise in law, health and ageing, legal aspects of health system reform and the ethical and legal governance of health research. She has a strong focus on applied research, community engagement and interprofessional collaboration between legal and health sectors. She is qualified as a lawyer in both Australia and Canada. Professor Rees has expertise in qualitative research with professional and consumer participants and a very large number of publications. I will put some links in the show notes for her online training about dementia for legal practitioners. I'm very pleased that we are bringing this important issue to your attention and I look forward to learning from these experts.
Okay, and so today I'm very excited to welcome Associate Professor Fiona Comfort and Professor Nola Reese to the podcast, who are going to talk with us about a really interesting topic, one that doing in um, my clinical work, and I'm sure many of you do too. The um, type of uh, referral that we're talking about today is people who are elderly and seemingly have no criminal history, but suddenly come to the attention of the criminal justice system. So uh, I always think this is a very exciting and challenging referral. And perhaps Fiona could give us a brief overview of the types of issues that might be encountered in this environment. Certainly. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, so this is a new area of research that we've been embarking on. And it really stemmed out of, as you said, this sort of clinical referral where people um, had had some altercations either with police or with security guards and they were presenting um, with various different behavioural changes. And so in some cases these have been issues of shoplifting or theft. Um, they might be traffic violations. So, for example, people running red lights or speeding, um, issues with people becoming more aggressive or even behaving inappropriately in public. And so we had um, in our clinic here at Frontier at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney seen a couple of patients where um, they had some of these issues occur. And then when the police were called, um, it was quite challenging for the family members to explain to the police that actually this person has dementia. Um, and so that is what really led us to do some more research in the area, try and understand how common these types of behaviour changes are, what happens when police or security guards are called, and what is the cause of these behavioural changes. And to add, Debbie, you in your question referred to a referral involving an elderly person. One point that has emerged in research in this area is that some of the behavioral changes can start to occur in people in their 40s, 50s, early 60s. So a challenge is often that the behaviors might be associated with something else, midlife, a midlife crisis, workplace stress, relationship stress. So it can take a long time before it's recognized as a symptom of dementia and a person receives an appropriate referral to, to investigate what is going on. I see. I, I, I think I find that very challenging that um, I certainly had a run of referrals where the offences were quite significant, like sexual sex offences, and um, the first behavioural change, in fact, that was identified was this behaviour, and then they came to neuropsych, so they didn't have a pre-existing diagnosis. Nola, do you have any information about sort of how how common these kinds of how commonly these diagnoses are coming up in this sort of environment? Fiona, I think we'll be able to share some of the research she has been been leading to to screen people who are referred. 
but on that point around the the initial offense that might lead to contact with police and then a referral to a neuropsychologist, there can potentially be a slow development of changes in behavior. And that is a point that has is apparent in literature where family members or carers have shared their experiences, where they start to note changes in behavior, the person becoming short-tempered, um, more irritable, agitated. And for a period of time, a family member has to make decisions about how they might intervene and potentially restrict what their spouse or, or or parent what they are able to do so that family member might run interference so to speak so there could be other things happening less serious kinds of offenses if we want to use that language but then there might be an escalation where it does become something that the police be, do become involved but there might be that history of other behaviors that a family member has just had to try to manage I think in terms of your question of how common it is, um, what we really found when we started looking into this area um, in more detail was this huge lack of research or this huge gap in the area. So in terms of um, there's some, um, there's two ways, I guess, to answer that question. The first is if you think about in the criminal justice system, how many people have dementia, um, that's sort of one side of the coin. But what we're really interested in is of people with dementia who are living in the community, how many of those show these criminal risk behaviours? Um, and, and that was where there was really very, very little literature available, even to the extent that there was no assessment tool that had been developed to really try and um, objectively measure these criminal risk behaviours. So that was really the first step of this project was to develop a, an assessment tool um, that we thought was reliable and valid and was able to assess these behaviours in the first instance. And so um, what we found really as we started to, to screen people who were coming through our clinic that these behaviours were much, much more common than I had anticipated and, and we really expected. So um, in what is really important to note, though, is the terminology in this area. So, um, and Nola pointed out, you know, differentiating between offences or criminal offending and what we think of as criminal risk behaviours. So from a legal point of view, um, if someone steals something, that in and of itself may not be sufficient for it to be considered a criminal behaviour. There needs to be intent behind it or um, what the legal system call mens rea or guilty mind. So, you know, people need to be intending to, to do the behaviour as well as the action in and of itself. And so when we've been developing this measure, we're not looking at intention. We're not looking at criminality. Uh, we're really looking at how common it is that people with dementia might be at increased contact with police and the criminal justice system more broadly. And we've screened over 150 people so far, and we found that nearly 50% of the people that we've screened have um, reported criminal risk behaviours since their dementia diagnosis. So it's really much, much more common and a really major issue. Absolutely. Gosh, that sounds like a red flag that should bring people for referrals. Quick smart. So those were those people 
already diagnosed with dementia when they were um, acting in this manner? Yes. So in the people that we've screened, they've had a dementia diagnosis so that we can be confident um, of their diagnosis. They've been seen by a neurologist and they've had a neuropsychological assessment. They've had an MRI brain scan. So these people have dementia. Um, but as you said, for some of the people, these um, criminal risk behaviours or behavioural changes were actually the first sign. And that was what led them to getting a diagnosis. So it can certainly be one of the most um, early features um, and particularly in a dementia syndrome that I'm interested in called frontotemporal dementia, um, where, you know, changes in behaviour and personality are the first features and it seems to be in this particular subtype that these criminal risk behaviours can be those sort of early warning signs. Well, you anticipated my next question, which was, <laughs> is there a specific type of dementia? So the the frontotemporal dementia is something that uh, when people hear about it, they're very interested in this idea. It certainly, it feels to me that sometimes that's the question that these people are coming with because, um, you know, the archetypal definition of the early stages of frontotemporal dementia is changes in behaviour. So um obviously it's really important that their legal people are noticing that maybe this is out, well maybe their families are telling them that this is out of context behavior or out of character sorry behavior so um what uh what would be the red flags i think uh is there a way of i guess capturing these people before they get into trouble with the police and need a lawyer to refer them on so absolutely, that's the aim of this research is to see if we can identify these, um, any sort of predictive um, features or, or things where we could identify people at risk. Um, in terms of frontotemporal dementia, the these people, um, you know, are seeing a change in behaviour from how they were previously. So they may develop um, a loss of empathy, they may become more apathetic or disinterested. Um, they may be um, more yeah, disinhibited in their behaviour. And so really the in terms of warning signs for legal team and family members um, would be people doing things that are out of character. So in our um, research, we did ask people about their entire criminal history. So have they had um, been charged in the past? Have they um, had any interactions with police? And there was no difference between um, people with dementia and our control group in terms of their previous offending behaviour. So it really is when people are doing things out of character. And as Nola said, in that sort of age range of, you know, 50, 60 years old, if someone is suddenly, you know, swearing a lot more, being inappropriate, um, making poor decisions, that's really a red flag that there might be something that's going on. Well, they're certainly useful red flags for, for people to look out for. Um, so, Nola, how, how does that... Um, are they the kinds of things that the legal literature... Um, talks about the, for people to watch out for? 
Yes, absolutely. And and from Fiona's point, that behavior that is out of character for a person, that's really a, a key red flag to be aware of. So if somebody in midlife, say from 50s onward, if they are charged with a criminal offense, and that is really their first episode of criminal offending, that is increasingly recognized as a trigger for referral for an appropriate neuropsychological assessment. And so there have been a, a few studies now looking at people aged 50 and older who have been detained by the police. And when assessments are done, it becomes clear that there are potentially issues around um, neurocognitive illness that do need to be assessed for. So it's increasingly viewed, it should be routine to have uh, an assessment focused on health issues so that there can be an early diversion from inappropriate criminal prosecution and punishment for people where the behavior is in fact a, a symptom of, of a health issue. It, it feels like the uh, legal team have to keep a lot in mind in in their not in their um thinking about these uh types of people so we've got this idea of that there's a report of that there's behavior that's out of character um and that there's no real significant cr criminal history that goes with that is there anything else cognitively that also becomes noticeable that people should watch for so um, I think that's a really important question. And again, there isn't a lot of literature out there. Um, one of the, the things that we know is the cognitive profile in frontotemporal dementia is quite different from the cognitive profile in Alzheimer's disease, for example. So in Alzheimer's disease, that's probably what people typically think of as dementia in terms of memory impairment. And people's behaviour changes might be, you know, getting lost or wandering. Um, there might be, you know, instances where they, um, you know, might have shoplifted something because they've forgotten to pay for it, for example. And so we do think that there's probably, in terms of the, the mechanisms leading to these behaviours, differences depending on the types of cognitive problems people are having. So if you're having memory problems, it might be more around um, yeah, wandering or trespassing or, you know, forgetting to pay for items. Whereas in frontotemporal dementia, the types of behaviours that we see um, seem to be more around the interpersonal. Uh, so things like um, physically assaulting people or becoming verbally aggressive, um, but also inappropriate behaviour. So, for example, um, touching or hugging or kissing strangers or things like approaching children that they don't know. And again, it's important to note that they might not have any sort of criminal intention behind these things, but you can imagine if a person who's in their 50s is, you know, going to a park and approaching children that they don't know, um, that, you know, the police might be called in those situations. And what we see is that then um, because of the sort of... Um, complexity in this area that it can be quite difficult for people to recognize that these people have dementia because they look physically fit and well they're relatively young um, often they're able to explain very well what's happened um, and so it doesn't immediately become obvious that they have memory problems where people might expect it to be dementia or they're not very elderly so they're not expecting this person to have dementia 
Um, so really, um, in terms of the the mechanisms, they seem to be different from person to person. Um, in my research, I'm really interested in social cognition. So it's um, a domain that neuropsychologists are only sort of starting to um, focus on a lot more. But social cognition is um, really the abilities that we use to participate in interpersonal situations. So those are things like our ability to recognise emotions in others. So is the person in front of you happy or sad or angry or scared? Um, our ability to empathise with other people and also um, what's called theory of mind or mentalising, and that's really our ability to understand other people's perspectives. And um, while there hasn't been a lot of research yet, what we're uh, hypothesising is that potentially it's these impairments in social cognition um, that are then leading to these criminal risk behaviours because people may not um, be able to understand how other people are feeling or, or, or appreciate how their behaviour might be impacting on others. And the other area that we think is probably very relevant is what we think of as executive functioning. So those higher level skills, things like reasoning, um, inhibiting behaviour um, and, and judgment and so forth. And so potentially when you have um, atrophy to those parts of the brain, so the frontal lobes of the brain that's really important in executive functioning, people may not be able to inhibit their behaviour in the same way or they may not be able to judge behaviours or assess risk in the same way and that might be leading to these, um, these criminal risk behaviours. And again, that's something that we're hypothesising and part of this research is to really understand the types of these behaviours. So as you said, we can try and start to understand the mechanisms and work out who might be at a greater risk. And this is probably a bit of a legal question, but it strikes me if, if they're having those kinds of difficulties that are leading to the offending, what does that mean in terms of things like whether they're able to participate fully in, in giving instructions and understanding a trial? Yes, that's a really important question and and. There certainly is a need to assess a person's capacity to, to do those very things. So a, a legal practitioner is only able to act on the competent instructions of a client. So a lawyer would need to ensure that the client is able to, to give instructions, to understand the, the legal processes that are occurring. Uh, even prior to that, when police might be interacting with individuals, it is important that, that they are able to recognize when there could be issues around uh, capacity. And in our review of literature in this area, we have looked for studies into police and their knowledge and training in relation to dementia. That has tended to focus more on older people with dementia being vulnerable as victims of crime rather than being alleged perpetrators of crime. But there have been a couple of interesting examples of police training we've located where police, for instance, have had training on dementia. And then they've had some experiential kind of activities or simulations where they have 
been able to try to understand what it's like to be a person living with with cognitive changes where it may be difficult to understand and follow police questions and directions. So it, it is important from that point of, of initial contact with uh, with police, for example, that that police are able to recognize that there may be issues in relation to capacity and the person's ability to follow instructions and, and understand what they're being asked to do. And again, that highlights the importance of early referrals for an appropriate assessment for those individuals. Great. So um, <clears throat> where do you think the, the, the research is going for the future then? It sounds like you, you've started some really complicated and important conversations what, what do you think the, the future holds for this research area? Well, I think it's a really exciting area of research because it does bridge these medical issues and the legal issues. And so, you know, being able to work with NOLA, who, you know, is a real expert in the law, um, has been really helpful in terms of ensuring that this information um, is shared to the practitioners that need it. And I think that's something that's really key. So, um, you know, historically, probably neuropsychologists and even neurologists may have been aware of these issues, but I don't think that it's been um, communicated as well mm. um, to people who are working in the sort of legal professions and really the first line, um, so police officers, security guards and so forth. And I think this data is really going to give us a good foundation to be able to go out to those people and share this information with them. Um, the other area that I think is really important, and we haven't really touched on a lot here, but it does have a huge impact for carers and family members. So often um, what we hear from the people who um, are looking at family members of people with these criminal risk behaviours is that essentially they mitigate the risk by staying at home and not going out anymore. So rather than, you know, going out to the shopping centre or going out and seeing friends and family, they're much more likely to, to stay at home. And this leads to a lot of social isolation for carers and also a reduction in independence for patients. Um, but I think, you know, there are ways that as psychologists we can um, teach strategies for how to manage behaviours in a positive way um, and how to really support carers in this process because um, certainly in some cases this can lead to um, patients being placed in residential care facilities and often that's, you know, not what families would prefer. Um, so I think that's the other area that's really important is to find ways that we can really support carers um, and give them the skills to be able to manage these um, behaviours and also ensuring that if these behaviours do occur, that the police and, and people that they're interacting with have good knowledge about dementia and its potential impacts and how to handle it in these situations. Well, that sounds like a full-time job for us to do that level of education. So at the moment, if, if someone's encountering these difficulties, would, would they get this sort of help from their neuropsychologist or would they go to someone else? I think a neuropsychologist is a great place to start in terms of understanding exactly what the cognitive problems are um, and really trying to, to understand if there is um, 
if you know there is a diagnosis of dementia that needs to be made once people have that diagnosis it really opens up um, a lot of more support services so for example dementia australia has some fantastic resources that people can access and certainly i think for family members um, it can be a bit of a relief to get a diagnosis so you can imagine if you've um, got this you know your husband who you've been together with for many years is suddenly doing things out of character and they seem more cold and disinterested and and you know doing things that are unusual it can be a real relief um, for people to know that there's a reason for this um, and there's actually you know um, changes happening in their brain that are causing these behaviors so absolutely I think if people are concerned you know talk to their GP about getting a referral to a neuropsychologist so that they can have an assessment and as Nola has said, you know, if someone, um, you know, happens to, um, you know, have some interactions with the criminal justice system and these things are out of character, um, to really be seeing if there is cognitive issues that are leading to it. So first-time offenders over the age of 50 who, um, you know, we would really think of as a red flag for someone needing to have a broader cognitive assessment. Great. And, and Nola, how can, how can the research help the legal profession or, or what do you think the future holds in terms of the legal elements of this? Yes, as Fiona highlighted, we're really keen for the research to be able to influence uh, policy and, and practice across various professions from uh, police and um, neuropsychology, other health practitioners, as well as the legal profession. So uh, in some of the work I've done, it has focused on training for the legal profession. So we have developed some online short courses for lawyers that focus on dementia. That's had a bit more of a focus on other kinds of legal issues. And this gets back to the importance of a person receiving a diagnosis where it can help obviously explain and understand behaviors but also help a person plan for the future. And that might involve seeing a lawyer for matters unrelated to criminal issues, which mm. it can be a, a much more of a positive experience in terms of seeing a lawyer to get help with advanced planning in terms of uh, financial planning and enduring financial power of attorney, uh, thinking ahead about healthcare and making uh, plans around that. So there are uh, other legal issues where it is important important for lawyers have an understanding of dementia if a client comes to them with a diagnosis that they're able to understand some of those capacity issues the person's capacity to um, to make an enduring power of attorney for example uh, do healthcare planning appoint a substitute decision maker for health matters to understand how decision making capacity can best be supported for an individual so there are a range of things that that a lawyer can assist with and, and where knowledge of dementia is important. And then in relation to potential uh, criminal issues, if a person has a diagnosis, uh, coming back to the role of family members, some examples we've seen in our research are family members then having a card that they would carry with them. So if there is some kind of inappropriate or embarrassing incident in a shop that the family member can discreetly show somebody else a card saying my, my partner has dementia, for example, uh, family members can 
discuss the situation with local shopkeepers. So there can be some, some shared knowledge and support within the community where the person with dementia lives and interacts. So it, it, it extends to a range of people, lawyers and other people being able to best support the person with, with dementia. Fantastic. Well, they sound like some very practical suggestions, which, which are great. So I, I guess I, I would just like to really summarise what we've been saying, which is that anyone suddenly starting to offend from middle age onwards seems to be a bit of a red flag for consideration, at least, of a possible neurocognitive diagnosis. And it feels like um, it, it's very important to get that message out, that, that to both the legal and, I guess, medical uh, professions that, uh, that that's really something to think about. So I thank you both for explaining these complicated things to us and I hope that, um, that that's been very in informative for everyone because I've certainly learnt some information. So I just wanted to say thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Debbie, for the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on the Your Brain Matters podcast. I hope you heard something interesting and relevant today. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcast provider to keep updated with the latest episodes. I look forward to next time. Bye.